All right, so today we're going to finish up our series on Balaam. And I promise there's going to be no donkey discussion today uh, whatsoever. Uh, I'm still waiting to get the call into the principal's office on that lesson from last week. I have not gotten it yet from Marty, but it's coming. So uh, no donkey discussion today. I do want to to just revisit a couple of the major things we've learned uh, over the last couple of weeks that are really setting us up for what I think God really wants to teach us in the story uh, that we're going to hear today. So if you think about, you know, we learned a a lot about the history uh, of what's going on in this time frame. We learned about the people groups that are involved, how they all can really trace themselves back to Abraham uh, right there in this area of the world. We learned that the the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land. This is right at the very end of the Exodus. They're about four four months away from kind of what we see in the story of Jericho, Joshua and Jericho. Uh, So they're right there at the end of that time period. And last week, what I really wanted to get out of last week is I wanted to make sure that you don't see Balaam as a friend in this story. Because it would be very easy, if you read this for the first time, to to read it and think Balaam is just a friend of God, a friend of the people uh, all throughout this story. But if we think that, if we were to allow ourselves to, to think that is the truth of the story, we wouldn't really understand what God is trying to teach us on the back end here in Lesson 3. Balaam is not a friend of the Israelites. Uh, not only is he not a friend, I, I think he's a pretty big adversary. Uh, in, the, in, in the eyes of the world at the time, he's a very worthy adversary. Uh, and, and so if you think about these characters, think about Balaam being a pretty big adversary of God, and you think about Balak, you know, the king of Moab in this story, what I really think that God is setting up here is that he, he's using Balak and Balaam to show what happens when, when the world puts God's promises on trial. So what is it whenever a promise of God is put on trial, how is God going to respond in those instances? And so what we're going to focus on today is we're going to go through those four oracles of Balaam. And remember, these are words that God put in Balaam's mouth to speak uh, to the people of Israel who were out there at that time. God used Balaam to, to, to give these words But he's really trying to show everybody, both the Israelites at the time, as well as us today, what happens when we put God's promises on trial. So as we get into that, uh, as as we think about these people right on the eve of their entry into the promised land, I want you to step back for just a second and and, and try to put yourself in their shoes. Try Try to put yourself both in their shoes as well as just understanding the context of the region at the time, and just think about how audacious the claims are of the Jewish people. Remember from our lesson a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the people at the time, all the cultures at the time for the most part, thought that all the gods were geographic in nature, that they were kind of contained to their individual people groups or individual kingdoms or individual geographies. And that when you got outside that geography, you went to a different God who had sovereign control over that area. But the Jewish people had a very audacious claim. They were saying, not only did our God create the world and create the universe, but our God is the only true God around. Every other God that you're talking about is is a false God, is an idol of some, some part. We worship the only true God. That seems like a statement that makes sense to us. But at the time, that was a radical, radical belief, right? Absolutely radical belief. And so not only did they believe that he was the one true God and that he created the universe, but they believed 
that that God had chosen them for some reason. Right? That he had chosen them to be a people set apart, a holy nation. Right? If you think about, you know, Abraham didn't do anything magical to receive that covenant with God. You know, God chose Abraham uh, to, to bless all the nations, which we'll get into in just a minute. But, but, but they believe that God chose them as a special people group out of all the different peoples uh, of the world. And then lastly, just probably the most audacious claim of all, is not only did he, chose, did he choose them, but God made some promises to these people. He actually made a lot of promises to these people. Uh, and and we've, we've studied the Bible in here. We've been, a lot of us have been in church for a long time. And these promises are, are, are things we kind of take for granted. Uh, but for those people at the time, the people we're talking about that are in this story, who are on the eve of going into the promised land, the promises of God were something they were depending upon for life or death, right? Absolutely life or death. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more as we go. What I wanted to do to kick off the lesson today, though, is I wanted to remind everyone of what promises God made to Abraham and a couple of the promises that he made to Moses. I want us to, to remember those promises because what you're going to find is as we get into these oracles of Balaam, God's going to use some words that he's already said before to confirm those promises to his people. So if you can, take a few minutes at your tables. And I just want you to pick two of the verses that are in your handouts at your table, whichever two you want. Pick two of those verses and read those. Uh, have someone just read aloud at the table, read those verses. And what I want you to do at your table is pull out in those verses what promises of God do you hear that have been given to his people. Take a minute to do that, and we'll come back and we'll talk about them. Well, as soon as I hear the conversations at like three or four of the tables uh, diverting into politics, I normally know it's about time to wrap it up. Uh, I just heard a little bit of political discussion going on. But, uh, uh, but there's something... There's some, we kind of come back together here. There's something special about the word promise. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like they're just, in, in our lives today, there's something special about the word promise. I know growing up, my dad used to really love to mess with me. Uh, and if anyone doesn't know my dad, he's right there. But he loved messing with me. I remember in high school, not only did he love messing with me, he loved messing with my friends too. And so, so I remember in high school, I had a buddy, a buddy named Kenny. And Kenny had gotten a speeding ticket. It was the first ticket he'd ever gotten. And uh, we were young and stupid anyway, and so he got a speeding ticket, and he hadn't paid his fine. And so he got, a, he got a, a note that he had a warrant out for his arrest. And so Kenny comes over to our house, and he's just freaking out that he's got a warrant. And my dad goes, well, Kenny, just go upstairs to www.warrants.com, and you'll, you'll find all the information on it. And so I see Kenny walking up the steps and goes to get on my computer, and Dad's just waiting for him to find out that there is no such thing as www.warrants.com. Uh, and you hear Kenny just you know, get mad, and Dad just start laughing. You know, he enjoyed messing with us. But, so because he enjoyed messing with me so much like that, every now and then whenever I was a kid, I would, I would look at him, and I'd go, are you messing with me? And he'd kind of look at me, and I'd always ask him this question. I'd say, do you promise? Right? And whenever I said those words, do you promise... He knew he couldn't mess with me anymore. If he's going to say the words promise, he's going to tell me exactly what was going on. And so this word promise, just for all of us, it has, it has that kind of connotation, doesn't it? And it's the same with God. Just like how I would expect my dad to, if he's going to promise something, he's going to deliver it. God felt the exact same way for his people. If he was going to make a promise, darn right he was going to deliver on that promise. And so I want you guys to read these things. I'm just going to go through them a little quickly here. Uh, but God made some bold promises. We're just used to them. But these are bold promises. So there in Genesis 12, uh, 2 through 3, a promise to Abraham. 
in those verses right there, he makes three separate promises, right? He promises that he's going to make of Abraham a great nation and bless him. Uh, He promises that, he goes, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's a pretty applicable promise in this story of Balaam, right? And then in that same little passage, he says, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, remember, he's making this promise to a guy who has a barren wife, right? I mean, God fulfills his promises. These are big, big promises. You go down to the second one, Genesis 13, 14 through 16. He makes two big promises here. He says in verse 15, he goes, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Just remember, Abraham is looking over the land of Canaan at that point in time whenever God is making this promise to him. Abraham is looking across all the land that the Israelites are getting ready to go into at this point in time after all the Egypt experience, after the Exodus. You know, uh, Abraham was originally, way back when, looking at this same area of land. So he's making a promise of your offspring, we're going to you know, see this land. Uh, and then in verse 16 there, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also can be counted. What's he saying there, right? He, he's saying, you know, I'm going to make your offspring so numerous, so numerous that nobody can even count them. It will be as, as just crazy to think about counting the dust on the earth as it will to count your offspring, right? That is a bold promise of God. In uh, the third one there, Genesis 17, 6, God makes this promise to Abraham. He goes, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And then pay attention to this one, and kings shall come from you. Remember that one. We're going to come back to that one here in a bit. Kings shall come from you. The fourth section of Abraham, Genesis 22, 17 through 18, Again, he goes, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. Again, reconfirming that promise that I'm going to make your offspring so numerous that it's just, it's just like the stars in the sky. You're not going to be able to count them. Uh, and then he goes, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Can anyone think about what that actually means? Any thoughts on that? Any takers on that one? They would own their cities. Yeah, they own their cities. If you're going to possess the gate of your enemies, you're going to be able to charge the gate, and that gate's going to be yours. I think, I think a bit of you're going to own the cities, but also it's alluding to military conquest. Right? If you're going to own the gates of those cities, you're going to be able to go in there and conquer uh, your enemies. That's a pretty applicable promise right now as these guys are on their way into the promised land. Remember, that, that's an inhabited land. Uh, If you get to the story of Joshua, which is going to come right after this episode, Joshua, in the first 12 chapters of Joshua, as they go into the promised land, do they go in and just kind of have fun drinking, you know, eating of the milk and honey land of all this stuff and just plentiful like Garden of Eden type environment? What happens in the story of Joshua? He... They, they, it's constant warfare, right? Absolutely constant warfare. In, in those first 12 chapters, Joshua uh, leads the Israelites. They defeat 31 kings of this land. It's, 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 it's a very applicable promise that you are going to own the gates of your enemies, right? That's, that's a big promise. So then if we keep going down, we then, as, as after the time of Abraham and with the time of Moses, as Moses has led the people out into the wilderness and, and Moses is, is communing with God, uh, we see that, that God kind of re-articulates some of these promises directly, to Moses, promises directly to Moses. So in that first one, in Exodus 3, 7 through 8, 
we hear this. He goes, you know, God's talking about how he has come to deliver the people out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, to the place of the Canaanites. And he goes through all the people groups that they're going to be in this land that then God is going to deliver to the people. And then lastly, that second promise to Moses, at the very end of that passage there in Exodus 19, 2 through 6, uh, he, he reaffirms to Moses this. He goes, if you obey me, if you obey this covenant, if you keep this covenant, this agreement that we have, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you step back on these promises, you know, there's going to be descendants. Kings are going to come from these descendants. You're, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. I will bless you. Not only am I going to bless you, but I'm not going to allow anyone else to curse you. Right? Kings are going to come out, and you're going to, you're going to own your, your enemies. You're going to have this land. Uh, all of the earth will be blessed through you. These are massive promises for this one people group in the middle of nowhere in history. Right? I mean, this is just so crazy to even really think about. And the Jewish people believed it at that point in time, just like we believe all this to be true today. But they didn't only believe it, they had to depend upon these promises. And as you go through the Old Testament and you think about where these people have come from, from this point in time, you can understand or at least empathize with the Israelites on why they may have wandered away or why they may have been in doubt that God would keep these promises. I mean, just think about this for a minute. I mean, they were, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That's not a small amount of time. They didn't really live a cush life while they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, that was a long period of time, not, not contrary to what God said was going to happen, uh, but they were slaves in Egypt for a very long time. And then when they are rescued, they go out into the wilderness for 40 years. And, and what was the lifespan of a person at that point in time? 40 years, right? So, so pretty much that entire generation that got rescued out of the hands of the Egyptians had passed away. You, you, you pretty much have you know, Joshua, Moses, and a couple of other guys uh, who are really the only remnants from the original exodus out of Moses. So an entire new generation has been formed. And, and, and they've learned to trust in God. They learned through the manna that's delivered on a daily basis. They, you know, they, they learned about God's law. They learned what it meant to follow God's law. They saw what, what happened whenever they wandered away and how God would rebuke them. They, I mean, they've learned a lot. But they've been in the desert for 40 years. Right? And, and I went out there. We, we, we were out there in that desert. That was not nice, was it? I mean, it was, oh, wait, do you think that was comfortable? Like I said, I think I've told you guys in here before, I had to have a granola bar after 15 minutes, right? It was just, you know, I was parched and I had more. You know, it was just, it was, it, was a, it was a difficult environment. And, and so, uh, yeah, no, I'm, and, and look, hypoglycemia is a real thing, right? So anyway, it's, uh, but, but it's a difficult environment out there. There's, there's uh, no real place to lay your head. It's really rocky. There's really no great water sources. Uh, I mean, those guys have had to learn to depend upon God with manna. Uh, on a daily basis. There's no other way that it could have worked. And so they've had some military successes throughout this story. We learned about that in week one. But, but they are completely and utterly depending that God is going to keep his promise. And all they've known in their entire life is pretty much wandering in the wilderness. That's all these people have known. 
And so we're benefactors, so we get to see how history unfolds. We know what happens at the end of this story. We know what's going to happen uh, with when Joshua leads these people into battle. They don't know that right now, right? They just don't know it. So if you're these people and you're getting ready to go into the promised land where you know there's these 31 kings waiting on you, uh, if you're those people, you know, this promise of God is the difference between life or death. If you're not going to depend upon that promise, you might as well go home because you're going on a suicide mission if God's not going to fulfill his end of the bargain right here. Does that make sense? So what I want to do is I want you to keep that perspective in mind, right? I want you to keep that perspective in mind as we go through this final part of the story of Balaam as we read these oracles. And and the image I probably want you to keep in mind here at the moment is I want you to think about a trial. I want you to think about like a, a courtroom trial. And in this courtroom trial, God is the defendant. Not only God, but God's promises are the defendant. And Balak, the king of Moab, is the prosecuting attorney. And he's trying to show that God's promises are not going to hold. He may not even realize what he's doing, but by, by asking Balaam to come down and curse God's people, he is directly contradicting a promise of God. We just read the promise there in Genesis, right? He, he's going to bless, bless his people, and he's going to curse those uh, who curse. So, so Balak is asking Balaam to come down and directly contradict. So he's the prosecuting attorney. And he wants to show that God's promises are not going to be fulfilled. And remember, why is Balak wanting to do this? What's his motivation? You know, ba- Balak doesn't want to get run over from a military standpoint. He's seen the Israelites conquer all these lands. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to lose his throne. But he's, he's trying to put God's promises on trial. And so he thinks that his special weapon, his, his star witness, so to speak, is Balaam. Because Balaam is the star witness of the prosecution who can come through and actually deliver on this result. And what I, what I love from this story as I read these oracles is God's pretty much doing this. He, he's saying, not only are my promises secure, not only am I the God of the Israelites, am I the only God of this world, my promises cannot be broken. They absolutely cannot be broken. And so what I'm going to do to just further my point is I'm going to take your star witness in Balaam, and I'm going to make him the star witness for the defense, right? I'm going to make Balaam just humiliate your case pretty much, and I'm going to use him for my purposes to show my people right then and to show my people today that the promises of God are always secure whenever they're put on trial. So I want to do this. I'm going to read the first oracle. And, and remember, these are words that God put into Balaam's mouth. I want to read that oracle, and then I just want to kind of stop throughout as we go through these oracles and just talk about what promises are being confirmed from God at the time. So the first oracle occurs on Numbers 23, 7 through 10. And remember, Balaam and Balak are up here, and they're looking out upon all the people uh, of Israel at this point in time. They're looking at them, and and Balak is wanting Balaam to curse God's people. So, So let me read this. These are the words that come out of Balaam's mouth. And so if we go to Numbers 23, and we start in verse 7, it says this. From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For not the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. 
Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So what promises is God confirming in this first oracle? If you kind of look through there, what, what do we see? What language do we see that looks very familiar to something we read back in Genesis? Count the dust, right? Very first thing I notice is, is they're going to count the dust. God's using this first oracle to confirm the promise that he's made. He goes, I told you that your dust, your people will be so numbered that to count them would be like counting the dust. He's confirming that promise right here. Uh, we also see in here, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed, right? How can I denounce whom God has not denounced? He's showing just what God said back in Genesis. I am the one who has the power to bless you, and I have the power to curse those who are dishonoring you. God's using that first oracle to confirm his covenant. So let's move on to Oracle 2. And so if we go to Numbers 23, chapter uh, verse 13, just want to start up there with verse 13. It says, And Balak said to them, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. So I just want to stop there for a second before I get into the actual oracle. Uh, this, when I was just reading through this for about the 18th time, I've, been, I've read the story doing the research for this. This really hit me. And I thought to myself, I was like, why is it that, okay, so Balaam failed to curse the people from one point. And so Balak takes him to another point, and he only shows him a fraction of the people. Right? And I thought, I was like, why would he do that? And the more and more I thought about that, the more I go, well, hold on. He might think, well, maybe cursing all the people is a bit too much for you. But I'm just going to pull out a few of these people and let it be like your warm-up round, right? If you can warm up, you know, uh, cursing these guys, then maybe we can get a bigger group uh, going out here. But he probably is also making a bit of an accusation against God that says, well, God probably doesn't care about just this small group of his people, right? But, yeah, he cares about the large horde, but surely he doesn't care about just this small group of people. And, and then, with that in mind, listen to what words God puts into Balaam's mouth in this second oracle. It says, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zabor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So just stop there for a second. Think about what he's saying right there. He's saying, I'm looking out at these people, this smaller group of people, and I'm saying right now, the Lord is with them. God is with those people. Not just a great group of them, but with that smaller group, God is still with them. And a shout of kings is among them. This is pointing towards the future, right? He's saying right there in that second oracle, kings are going to come out of these people just like the covenant God made back in Genesis. So keep going here. It says, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox, which we'll talk about in a second. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought, behold a people as a lion as it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it's devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. God is stressing here in this oracle that what he promises cannot be changed. I love those words. He goes, am I a man that I would lie? 
We all know our sinful nature. We know that we will fail. Even we don't want to, we will fail. God is not like that, right? He is not like that. When he makes a promise, he's going to deliver it. Uh, and, and what I love uh, also here, Balak was, was directly quoting that God could change here by, by asking Balaam to come curse. He's making an accusation that God could change his very nature. And God's made it clear, I can't change the nature of who I am. I have told my people one thing, and I will fulfill that promise. So let's go here to the third oracle. And in this message of the third oracle, you know, Balaam has failed two times, and Balak has seen him fail two times. And now he goes to a different uh, area where he's really looking out upon all of the tents of the people uh, who are camping out there in the plains of Moab. And I think in this third instance, it seems like Balaam's eyes are a bit open to just how powerful and mighty God is. He's really come to the, to the conclusion at this point in time. He's not changing any minds. Uh, the, the words that are coming out of his mouth are not his own. And he's kind of submissive almost to the will of God. So let's read what Balaam says in that third oracle. So go to Numbers 24, verses 2 through 9. It says, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Just stop there for a second. Everywhere in the Bible where you see someone having a kind of direct interaction with God, the, the presence of God, the glory of God, what happens? Every time in the Bible, they fall down, right? They absolutely fall down. You see this in story after story where people who you seem like have everything all together in the presence of God realize how unworthy they are to be in the presence of God. And you see Balaam right there being absolutely humbled. He's falling down. Uh, with his eyes uncovered. And then he says this, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Now where are they again? The geographical setting right now, where are they in this story? They're in the desert, right? And he's talking about cedar trees and waters and aloe and all these different things. He is seeing the beauty of God in these people, he's showing just what, what, what man is seeing as desert, God is giving life to. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Uh, this, this little reference right here, his king shall be higher than Agog, and I'm sure I'm missing up that pronunciation. Uh, but that reference, we actually see this character, this king, come up in the Bible again. And, and we see the Israelites go to battle against that man in 1 Samuel, uh, whenever you see the kings of Israel actually come about. So this is a prophecy that gets fulfilled later on in God's story. Uh, and so then we, we see these words, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. So I stopped there as well whenever I was reading this again. Uh, and I stopped there for the reason that if you go back to the second oracle, you're going to see those exact same words in the second oracle. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. So like the American buffalo, the wild ox is now extinct, right? So, so um, the wild ox was an animal back in these days that was hunted a lot, but it was this ferocious animal. Uh, and it had a reputation at the time of just being untamable. No man could tame the wild ox. And so if you think about this, God is saying, 
I am for, for that wild ox, I am his horns, right? And, and think about the horns. Think about this ferocious animal that's going into battle. What goes first? The horns go first, right? God is going out ahead of the wild ox. His horns are going first to, to pave the way. And as you go through the story of Joshua, you're going to see God goes out ahead of his people time and time again to fight the battles, right? So it's an incredible way from a symbolism standpoint of how God goes ahead of us. But also a wild ox, right? A wild ox is untamable, right? Does not man seem to be untamable at times? Just absolutely untamable? Well, the next place that I saw, at least, where wild ox comes up in the Bible is in the book of Job. And, uh, and the book of Job actually occurs prior to this in history. It occurs during the patriarch time, uh, the time of Abraham, pretty much. But in the book of Job, if you guys recall, Job is not happy with God. He, he's had a pretty rough go of things, and he's, he's kind of angry, and he's, he's asking God to explain to him why in the world all these things are befalling him. Uh, and, and in God's response to Job, which was a, it's a beautiful response, uh, we see this wording used in the response. So God's talking back to Job. And he's pretty much telling Job, he goes, be careful, buddy. Uh, you don't really know all you think you know. Were you there whenever I created all the world? Were you there whenever the oceans were planted and all the stars in the sky were put together? Uh, and then he uses these words. He goes, is the wild ox willing to serve you, Job? Uh, will he spend the night at your manger? You know, God's, God's letting Job right now, you don't have the power to tame the wild ox, but I actually do have the power to tame the wild ox. So, if we keep going through this, I just lost my place. If we keep going through this uh, third oracle, we get to this. He goes, he shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and he shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who will rouse him up. And then God says this through the words of Balaam, through the mouth of Balaam. He says, blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Wouldn't you love to have seen Balak's face right about now, uh, whenever he is, he is going through that time frame, and he's saying, he hears, he hears Balaam say, blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. They have to know game is over at this point in time. Game is absolutely over. What I love about these first three oracles is that God isn't using incredible acts. He isn't, he isn't making this huge declaration with, a, with an incredible miracle or anything to occur. He's using a guy who's been broken. He's using that star witness for the prosecution to make his case. He's saying, Balak, you have come to put my promises to my people on trial, and you're going to lose, buddy. You're going to lose. And so if we take this back for a moment and we think about for those people at that time remembering that their dependence upon these promises of God were life and death, absolute life and death. I want to fast forward now to us today for just a second. And I want us to think, but just talk about it at your tables for a few minutes. What are the promises of God today that we are depending upon? Today that we're depending upon this week, what are those promises of God that we too are depending upon? Because it may not be that we're going out, which we're not. No one go do this. We're, we're not going out into battle in God's name anywhere, right? We're, we're not going out to conquer uh, the promised land. But God's given us promises too. What are those promises that we're depending upon today? Talk about that for a few minutes and we'll come back. All right, so, so pulling this back, is there anyone who wants to share about a promise of God that we're depending upon today that was talked about at your table? Any takers on that? 
Yep. Yes, sir. I will never leave you or forsake you, no matter what you've done, right? It's uh, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. It's a pretty awesome promise. And it's a promise he gave to his people at that point in time. And, and, and uh, Balaam is sitting there saying, I, I'm looking at the people and God is with them, right? He's with them. Even that small minority of the people that you wanted me to curse, he's with them. Yeah. Any other promise of God? First thing I think of is yep. rainbow. Rainbow, he's not going to flood us to death anymore, right? Yeah, rainbow, That's a good one. I'll take that promise. We're depending upon that promise. Sometimes we question it whenever the hurricanes come, but uh, but we'll we'll. Uh, that's a good promise. Yep, Chris. We got a little list. Yeah, give give me your top one on that list. Uh, <laughs> what's the top one? Uh, he'll always give us a way out. Yeah. And you, you think about this. You always say he'll always give us a way out. I I I think you know it's a we we are all depending upon the promises of God and. And the world's going to promise us a lot, right? The, pro- the world is going to promise us a way out, right? The, the world's going to look at you and say, hey, you're anxious. You're depressed. You're, you, have, you have all of these issues. There's something unsettling in you. Here's your way out, right? Here's your way out. And think about how the world is telling us what our ways out are. It, it's going to be, you know, you're unhappy in your marriage. The way out is with this other woman. I mean, you, you're unhappy uh, in and you, you don't have enough money to do things. You're well, quit, quit tithing. You know, go spend your money on these things. You know, you, you seem to be absolutely just burdened and, and you can't find relief from that burden. Turn to this drink, turn to this drug, turn, turn to all of these different things that the world gives us. And it's tempting because we get momentary relief from those things. We do. I mean, I'm not going to lie, we do. Uh, and, and what's that? Yeah, well, well, God's going to, I remember a guy who preached on this topic not too long ago, and, uh, and he, there's a common saying out there that God will never give us more than we can handle, which is an absolute lie, right? God, God will give us more than we can handle, but he will never give us more than he can handle through us, right? He never will. He always gives us that way out. That way out is depending upon the promises of God, not depending upon the promises of the world. Uh, one, one thing I love so much that we do here at our church is we have a care series and a Celebrate Recovery program. And our care series and celebrate recovery program is just filled with people who are struggling with something or another. And especially in our celebrate recovery program, those people have in the past turned to the ways of the world for their relief, right? For their way out. And 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 all we're trying to do in that program is teach them the promises of the world are going to fail, right? They're gonna fail. They've made you these promises before and you have been burned. The promises of God will always stand the test of the trial. They will always always stand up. They'll always be held, even when we don't do our part of the bargain, right? God's faithfulness is always going to be there. So I want you, yeah, Gene, go ahead. Um, we all have heard this, man, but I think, the, I think the greatest promise God ever gave is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that yep. whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Sometimes me and you, we just need to segue because that's exactly where we're going. So, so on Gene's note there, God makes a couple of pretty big promises that we haven't talked about yet today. And I want you to remember the promise that Gene just talked about, the promise of Christ as we read this last oracle together. So let's go to this last oracle, oracle number four, numbers 24, 15 through 24. 
And remember, this oracle, Balak didn't even ask for this oracle. Remember, they're getting ready to go their separate ways. And Balaam says, hold on, I'm sorry, but he's got more to say. And so, so God has he spent the first three oracles confirming his, his, his original promises. Uh, he's, he's set up a couple prophecies that are going to come through. But this last one, this is, this is kind of like bonus round. God saying, I've got something I want you to know. And here's what he says. It says, and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows, and knows the knowledge of the Most High, which I was, there's another four sermons on this one that we could do, but we're going to keep going. So, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead, forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. I want to stop there for just a second. Does anyone, does anyone, does that language, crush the forehead of Moab, ring any bells to anyone of the lesson we've had in here before? Does anyone, anyone remember that lesson Lance gave us about the fall right there in the garden? The, the, very, first, the very first incident in the Bible... Uh, where the gospel is referenced, what we believe to be the gospel we reference, is right there at the end of the fall, God is pretty much saying, there's going to be a seed that's going to come out of this woman, and that seed will crush the head of the serpent, right? Will crush the head of the serpent. We can read this prophecy right here, and we can see a scepter shall rise out of Israel, uh, which is referring to royalty. And a lot of people believe that this was the, this was the prophecy of the Davidic throne, like the King David that would one day come. And as Christians, we understand the overall prophecy of David that we see how Jesus Christ comes out of the line of David. We understand this to be a prophecy right there coming out of Balaam's mouth before the people went into the promised land, a prophecy of the Messiah that would one day come. It says this, it says, Edom shall be dispossessed. Uh, Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities which we will see this come to fruition later on in the Bible. Then he gets some bonuses. Then he looked on Amalek and, and took his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. Uh, Amalek really refers to uh, the people who could trace their ancestry back to Esau uh, from, from the story of Esau and Jacob. Uh, then he keeps going and he says, and he looked upon um, Kenite and he took up his discord and says, enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set on the rock. Uh, this people group, uh, we will see this prophecy come through whenever the Assyrian Empire comes through this area and just destroys these people. Uh, And then we get back, if you go down here to the last one, you see this message about the ships of Katim, uh, and we see this prophecy come through whenever the Greeks and the Romans uh, come through the area. So God is giving all of this information about what is going to one day come that he further delivers upon in the stories we can read right here in the Bible and the stories we can read in history. But the biggest promise that he delivers to us in this, in this final oracle is that one day a Messiah will come. I am confirming to you what I told you all the way back in the garden that one day I will send a Savior who will crush the forehead of your enemies, who will crush the consequences of sin in this world. He's making it known right there. And I love this oracle. I love, I love where this takes place. Because whenever you really start to understand all these dynamics in the Old Testament, you see God do this time and time again. God makes a promise to his people, and he fulfills that promise. 
He makes a promise, then he's going to tell you how he's going to execute that promise, and then he fulfills what he said he was going to do. And normally when he fulfills his promise, he does it in ways where you know that man was not the one behind it. There was no way man could have acted in the way that, that, that they did to make what happened happen. There's no way without God's intervention, without him being the horns on the top of the wild ox, there's no way these people could have gone through the promised land, gone through the land of Canaan, and won 31 victories over the kings of that land. There's no way it could have happened. And there's no way this prophecy that he says that will come through the line of David happens in the way that it ends up happening. And so what we're going to do next week is we're going to tell a story about a guy named Ehud who is a judge uh, in the time of the judges, which is the time period we're getting ready to get into after Joshua. Uh, Ehud is the the next guy in the Bible who has an interaction with the Moabites, and we're going to talk about that for one week. But then we're going to jump into the story of Ruth. And the reason I want to connect all this together right now is remember how I said God always fulfills his prophecies in ways that make you realize that only God could be behind it. This prophecy that we hear in this fourth oracle of Balaam, God fulfills that prophecy with the most vulnerable person in all of society. If you you go through society and you look at all the levels of stature of of greatness in society, from king down to peasant, the most vulnerable person in all society, especially in the eyes of God and the eyes of these people, would have been a non-Jewish woman who was widowed who could not have children. A non-Jewish woman who was widowed who could not have children. That woman's name was Ruth, and she just happened to be a Moabite. And so so God is going to use right there in Moab, right there in the plains of Moab, he goes, I'm going to show you one day, I'm going to take the most vulnerable of all the people you will ever produce, and I'm going to make my prophecy, my Messiah, my promise be fulfilled in a way that you have to know that only I could be behind it. So this week what I want you guys all to do is I want you to always remember that the promises of God will always be fulfilled. You're going to be tempted this week with the promises of the world. They're going to ask you to put the promises of God on trial. I want you to remember the promises of God as you go through this time. And we'll talk next week about a pretty cool story about the judges. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll get out of here. Father, thank you again for these guys. Uh, Thank you for your word. Uh, But more than anything, we thank you for your promise. Uh, The ultimate promise, as Gene showed us, is the promise of your son. The promise you've been telling us all along was going to be delivered. You you used your prophets, you used so many people to tell us that one day it would happen, and it happened. We can look on the other side of history now and know that we are benefactors of that promise. May we not doubt you, may we not doubt your greatness, may we not doubt your will in our lives, and may we trust that you are a much better answer than the promises this world can deliver. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.